that's for, don't you? You'll have to wait and find out till the very end. This is one of my favorite Sundays because I get to dress in the most comfortable outfit I get all year. I get to wear my pastor Royal Ranger outfit. And uh, this is the way, for those of you who don't know me, this is the real me. I'm, I'm all about comfort, and this is just comfortable. So glad you're with us today, and I'm grateful for our Rangers. I know that as you're walking in today, today's a unique day in the fact that you get to smell the food the whole service. And because I understand that, we are going to try to squeeze everything in before your stomachs start growling as a choir uh, together. We have been, for the last several weeks, in a series in Revelation. I'm going to encourage you, if you take your Bibles, if you have them, and and turn to Revelation chapter 2. Today we're going to be talking about Thyatira, tolerating Jezebel in the sixth of our series in Revelation. And Lord, as we approach you this morning, we recognize that without the leadership and guidance of your Holy Spirit, we would be left floundering as it relates to understanding your word. But Lord, for those of us that know you and are alive in you, you begin to turn a spotlight on in our heart and mind and that we, we can see not only the historical aspect of these letters, but also clearly how to apply them in the context of our lives today. And so, Lord, because I am your servant, and the only thing that can take place here of any value is if you were at work in our midst, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to have access to our minds, to have access to our intellect, and to have access to our souls so that you can draw us to yourself. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. For those of you that may just be joining us, I would encourage you to go to our website and you can see the previous messages because as we get into this, you're going to begin to recognize that there's a pattern that is taking place. The first couple of chapters we looked at and then we dove into chapters 2 and 3, which talks about letters, seven letters that are written to seven actual towns or seven actual cities and if you were to look at a, at a map, it would look as if they were in a postal delivery system, kind of in a, in a circle there that follows a clockwise way. And today we are in, talking about the letter to the, to the city of Thyatira. Interesting enough, someone said that this letter is the longest and most difficult of the seven letters to look at, and yet it is written to the least important and the least remarkable of all seven of the cities. And I guess that the way that we would look at that is to say, I believe God has a lot to say to people who feel they are unimportant. God has a lot to say to people who feel that they are unimportant. As we look a little bit at this city that's going to help us understand some of the letter, Thyatira is about 40 miles inland from Pergamum, which we talked about, I was going to say last week, but last week we had a very, I was told that I look like a wallflower compared to our evangelist last week. Uh, he was fantastic, and uh, we will certainly have him back. But two weeks ago when we were talking about Pergamum, if you were to, to see a map, about 40 miles inland from Pergamum is Thyatira, and it was built in a river valley. In fact, it was a travel corridor that anybody that was coming through would not be on the cliffs on the right or the left or in the mountains, but would be walking right down this corridor. And in every sense, Thyatira was built to be a disposable city. It was built to be a city 
that basically from a military standpoint, its whole purpose in existing was so that it could stand in the way of invading armies and give Pergamum, which is about 30, 40 miles away, an opportunity to get the really important government people and the really important officials and the really important paperwork, and they could escape. And so this city was literally there just so it could be run over, slow down the enemy for just a little while to give us about a 24-hour heads up so that the really important people could leave. But it was the kind of city that no matter who held it, it had to be defended. And whoever took it, if it was destroyed, they had to rebuild it because of its strategic location. Because it laid right in the path of this valley. In fact, when they did some excavating a few years ago, they found a coin that gives a great description. I'd like to show that to you. A coin of Thyatira that really describes the nature of the city. The picture is of the god of the city or one of the gods. And the, the back side of it was of a double-edged axe, which really was the picture of the kind of city. It was a military outpost. And this is what they thought of themselves. And this is the best way that they could describe themselves. The Romans had come in and now, as this letter is being written to them, peace has kind of settled on this city. And it had become a traditional or a commercial trading center. It's, it's just beginning to be successful in the areas of business at the writing of this letter. In fact, right now, at the writing of the letter when it was being delivered, it would be a city that would be known for its trade guilds or trade unions. There was wool workers and linen workers and maker of garments and dyes and leather and tanners and potters and, and, and bakers and slave dealers and bronze smiths. And we know all of this. And, and also from Acts chapter 16, we know that Lydia, who was the, the, the maker of fine purple, this was her hometown in Thyatira. And it's in the backdrop of all of these unions and guilds that this letter is written to because in the middle of this if you were going to work in the city in one of these industries you had to belong to a guild and each guild had its own god its own place where when they would come together for union meetings they would sacrifice something they would pray to that god and then they would all serve this meat together and then at the end of those meetings it became a drunken orgy or a, a wild festival of all kind of rituals and revelry and the practice of immorality was all over the place in the middle of this. And so Christians in Thyatira had a problem. If they were going to work, then they probably needed to belong to a trade guild. And if they belonged to one of those, then they probably needed to go to the meetings where the sacrifices took place and they were eating things that were offered to idols and that there was all kind of immorality that was taking place. And so it is in this setting that we now turn to Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, and read this letter that Jesus wrote to this church. He says, To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. 
Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you, only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As in every letter, the first thing that takes place in this is there's this description of Jesus which relates directly back to chapter 1 and some of the vision <clears throat> excuse me, that John had then. And it starts here in verse 8 saying this, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. The first thing that he does in this letter is he identifies himself as the Son of God. And to us who are reading this today, this is a very familiar term, but it would not be a familiar term to those that were reading this letter because it's the only time in the book of Revelation that this term is used is right here. I believe it's used because the Lord wants to remind this church that he has the authority and that when he speaks, they should listen. He says, I am the Son of God. In other words, I am the one who has the authority to issue to you the orders, and it's your responsibility to obey those orders once I have given them to you. He follows that up with the description of his eyes. And he says, his eyes are like flaming fires. It's almost as if when he looks, it's, it's like he has flashing insight. He, he sees past the masks that we wear. He sees past the facade. He, he sees past the arguments that we make to justify the things that we want to do. And the Lord is looking with a penetrating gaze at this church. And then he describes his feet as that with burnished bronze. Now, because Thyatira had bronze makers there, this would have been something they would have understood. In fact, the word in Greek that's used here is only used twice, and both times it's in the letter of Revelation. It means that this is hardened metal. It is polished. It is shiny. It is radiant. And the Lord has it on his feet, and it's symbolic. It's a way of saying that when soldiers go off to battle, they're not wearing flip-flops. When soldiers go to battle, they are not wearing really loose-fitting sandals. They wear boots because they're going to be treading on rocks and hard places. And so the picture is of Jesus saying, when I march into your city in judgment, I'm going to crush everything that I step on. I'm coming as an overcomer. And whatever I step on will crack underneath me. And so the image here is one of authority that he is instantly portraying to the church. And then he moves into the diagnosis of the believers. The first thing that he says is, I want to commend you in verse 19. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. The striking thing is that, that this is the longest word of commendation of any of the letters. To the church 
And the town that seems as it's disposable, and if it's not worth very much, he has a lot to say to them. In fact, it's interesting because there are two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, to whom the Lord says nothing critical of, but his approval of Thyatira is longer than the approval that he gives to those churches of which he has no criticism. Sometimes we look at things in black and white. Sometimes we forget that in the middle of our failures, in the middle of our insecurities, in the middle of thinking that we aren't worth much, in the middle of thinking that we are not going to amount to much, the Lord speaks and he says, I want you to see the things through the eyes of the way I see you. I do not see you as defeated. I do not see you as worthless. I do not see you as insecure. I see you as an overcoming body of believers. I see you as an overcoming individual. And though you may think little of yourself, I've got a lot of good that I see in you that I want to accomplish in your life. And so we look at what Jesus has to say, and, and here's what he makes note of. And I want to link some of these together. He, he sees their works or their deeds. He sees their love and their service here. And I believe that when you put these things together, it can be best understood this way. He can, because in this, it contains both their action and their motive and their attitude. How many of you know that you can sense somebody's attitude? Any of you? How many of you are expert eye rollers? You can flash an attitude without saying a word. Some of you are laughing and some of you are looking at the people around you. I didn't mean that to, to point out anybody's... That, by the way, eye rolling is not a spiritual gift. He says to them, I know your deeds. In other words, I see everything that you do. As I was praying about this this morning, I, I just jotted down a little note on the side because I just felt like the Lord wanted me to say this. It may be it's you today that's been going through situations and you've been trying to do everything right and it just doesn't seem as if the blessing of the Lord has been following you in this. I want you to know something. God is keeping records. God says he sees it all. I'm making note because I know everything you do. Whether people recognize it, whether they give you credit for it, whether they pat you on the back or not, the Lord is saying to this church, I know everything. And I am keeping records. I know what you do. I know your actions. I'm acquainted with it all. He says, I know your love, which I believe serves as the motive for the way that they act. They, they had a loving attitude and disposition to their community and to the people around them. And as a result of that, the love is the inner thing. The, the service is the outer thing. And love expresses itself in service. In fact, it's... The word that is used here is the one that we talk about as ministry. It's a serving of the saints. It's a serving of the Lord. And here is a body of people that have this wonderful characteristic. From the motive of love inside comes the activity of service on the outside. And then he says, and this servanthood is embraced by all of you believers. And he says, this is the attitude. You do not get weary in doing the right thing. You do it with a good heart and you don't roll your eyes. When it seems as if everything's not going your way. Bill Kirk describes a servant as this way. Someone who advances others at the expense of themselves and cares less who gets the credit. And then he commends their faith and perseverance. And I put these two together for this reason. Faith and endurance. Because oftentimes in the church and in the culture in which we live, we associate faith with deliverance. 
that if we have enough faith and if we act on that enough, then God is going to remove us from situations that may be difficult. But he's commending this church for their faith that leads to endurance. I believe that this is a word that America needs to hear today. That our faith is going to be tested and it might not lead to a deliverance as we look at it, but it might lead to the fact that he's going to say, I see the way you live your faith and it produces in you an endurance that you will do the right thing the right way at the right time because you love me. And so your faith produces an endurance. Faith gives this church a staying power to hang in there when things are rough. And he goes on and later in the verse 19 and he says this, you are now doing more than you did at first. Now you, you contrast that to the Ephesian letter where he said you're doing all these things but your love is gone. The love is waxed cold. Your first love is gone. And here he looks at this church and he said, here's what I see in you. In the middle of this society, Thyatira is maturing and it's growing and it's expanding. It's influence. It's vibrant. It's alive. It has energy and it's loaded with activity. What a tremendous thing for the Lord to point out about his church. You who think so little of yourself in a disposable city, I want you to know that I see what you're doing and there's life in the house of God. Don't you wish he could just stop the letters there? Don't you wish that he would just send you a card and that all that there would be listed on the card would just be everything that he wants to commend you for? But then he moves on and he begins to offer this word of condemnation. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. I doubt that Jezebel was the name, was the real name of the lady. I think it was probably symbolic of a spirit that she brought into the church at that time. For those of you that may not be familiar, Jezebel was a very famous person in the Old Testament. She was the daughter of a Phoenician king of Tyre who married into a political alliance with the king of Israel, Ahab. And she brought with her from the north her, her worship of Baal and integrated it into the life of the children of Israel and caused them to sin greatly. And Ahab, who lived his life as if he was trying to keep one, one foot in the world and one foot into that which God... And, and trying to do this was a very destructive leader. In fact, the Lord looks at him and describes that he was worse than all of the other kings before him. And the Lord looks at this particular church and this person in the church who is evidently well-respected, but she has given herself a ministry title. She has titled herself. It says, the scripture says, she calls herself. I want you to know there's a difference in individuals who are called by God and those who call themselves. There's a difference when the anointing of the Lord is on an individual to lead and to preach, and those who lift up themselves because they want influence in people's lives. She has titled herself, given herself a title, a prophetess, and she evidently, as a part of this group, identified with the Nicolaitans and the Balaamites, and they all believed the same thing. They believed that you could compromise your physical body with the world, but that your soul was a separate entity and everything would be okay. And so here's what she was teaching them. She goes, listen, 
The argument that she would use is you've got to make a living. We live in this town, and if you want to have a job, you're going to have to join these guilds. And so it's going to be okay for you to be a part of the church and also a part of the guilds. It's going to be okay for you to participate in worship on a Sunday and then go out during the rest of the week and involve yourself in whatever your guild may be involved with. You, as long as you know that you, they may be killing and sacrificing animals and praying to their God, but you, you just need to know that whatever soils your body cannot soil your soul. And there's this dichotomy that she was teaching. She said, basically, sin all you want with your physical body, but just maintain prayer that your soul remains pure. And as I looked at that, I began to recognize that there is application in the culture in which we live today from this as well. We have to realize that this is a war within the people of God, and it's a continuing war with us. And here's the way that plays out for us. We often deal with situation ethics where there are things that we would look at when we're not in the situation and say, we would never do, yet when we are in the situation, we justify things. It comes down to this. We have heard in all kind of political uh, campaigns and things about who does our body belong to? Who owns my body? Now, we as believers recognize that when Jesus came into your life and saved your soul, that he needed to be more than just the Savior. He needed to be your Lord. He needed to be the one that would guide you, direct you, that your, your ownership of yourself was relinquished, and he sets up in the throne room of your life to give commands. He has the ownership of your body. We see this played out in Romans chapter 12 and he says you are to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable which is your reasonable act of service and so calling the church to an understanding we don't have the right to do things with our body that belongs to the Lord that would displease him or mess up this temple of the Holy Spirit there is not a division of that, he says. And as we look at this, we begin to recognize that he is calling this church out and saying, you are beginning to tolerate things that are outside the will of God. How many of you know that when it comes to sin, Jesus is not tolerant? And you need to know that when you take your stand for righteousness, in the eyes of others, you are going to be seen as intolerant. Yet the Lord here is calling for intolerance in his people with respect to sin as it relates to your body. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 gives us a prophetic view of what is going on around us and what is yet to come when it says this, For the time will come. It, this is not a maybe. This isn't something that might or might not happen. It says this will happen. The time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. In other words, there are going to be, in the last days, lots of people that will self-title themselves as prophets and ministers and pastors and teachers that will tell a sinful world exactly what they want to hear. 
And they will stand in the face of the church and say, that's just your belief. That's not mine. Because I can find somebody else that will tell me what I want to hear. The apostasy of the last day. And it says, they will turn their ears away from the truth. Now, when you take this verse and you hold it up as a mirror at the end of every one of these letters, when it says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. They will have turned their ears from that which is truth so that they can have what they want. There are a lot of people filling pulpits today that have given themselves spiritual titles in these last days. There are a lot of people with, with charismatic personalities have gathered people. Let me tell you something. If your loyalty is to me over the Lord, then you are in deep, deep trouble. I am the best man of the bridegroom. I am not the leader of this church. It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's going to come a day when I will be gone. And should the Lord tarry, somebody else will step into this pulpit. This church belongs to the Lord. Belongs to the Lord. And any individual that seeks to gather people and cause their loyalty to be to him or her is outside of the will of God as it relates to the power and the moving of the Holy Spirit in the role of ministry. There's a lot of self-titled people living in this world. And he looks at them and he said, listen, those who preach my word will not give approval for that which God has expressly disapproved. We have changed a lot through the years, and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I grew up in a very legalistic background where holiness had a look. You know, we didn't play cards. We didn't go to movies. I remember at 18 years old, my mom told me I was finally old enough to make my decision, and I went to a movie theater for the first time at 18, went and saw a Disney movie called Gus the Kicking Mule. <laughs> he was a football player. I remember sitting there that whole time thinking, oh, Jesus, please don't come. Oh, Jesus, please don't come. <laughs> I have since learned a little bit more about the grace of God, but there's a lot of you that know exactly what I'm talking about. I do believe, however, that we have fallen in, in, into the, the, the flow of that which used to be unholy. We now have begun to allow into our lives to the point where we don't look a whole lot different. We've allowed ourselves to participate and speak and, and do things that the Lord is saying, I want you to know I still do not tolerate sin. I want a holy people set apart. And the question I would ask you is this. If Jesus would be uncomfortable with you watching or participating, then ought yourself not to be uncomfortable because of him who lives within you. So the Lord dealing with this church says you're tolerating Jezebel and her views are abhorrent to me. And so he brings correction to this group. And the first thing that he says to them is he, he speaks about Jezebel, the people that have this spirit. He says, I gave them time to repent. We are going to be stepping in in the next few weeks to, to some of the judgment scenes and the scenes in heaven. And, and, and it is going to be beyond our ability to describe. But let me tell you something. It will be frightening to stand before a holy, holy, holy God unprepared by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because every person that stands before him will have to give an account of their opportunities to repent when they chose either to do so or not. 
He says, I gave her time to repent of her immorality. How good of the Lord that even when people are involved in things that they should not be involved with, by His grace, He allows them opportunity to repent. But she was unwilling. And I believe that by this unwillingness, what it's saying here is it's an ongoing, persistent action that she refuses to give up. And as a result of that, moves herself out of the grace of God and in to the judgment of the Lord because he says, I will cast her, I will throw her on a bed of suffering. This literally could mean that the Lord was going to smite her with sickness or it may mean that the fate of such a group, this is, this is important, the fate of such a group who believe that they can continue going on sinning again and again and again and again, at some point their claim to be Christian will ultimately die because they cannot hang on to the title of being Christian and still live in such a way that the Lord absolutely abhors. Because a person cannot practice that kind of license and remain long in the faith. For those of you who hold in your hands or in your theology a view that once you have said the prayer of salvation, that from that moment on you are eternally secure, that nothing can pluck you from the hand of God and no decision that you ever make as it relates to your behavior or the activity can ever change your salvation, this letter stands as a stark reality. And I know that when I open that door, it will, it will come at a time where I'm going to need to bring balance to that. Because other people will say, okay, well then just how much sin is it before the Lord erases the name? or it gets I don't know. I don't know where that line is. I just know that if you continually ask God to forgive you of something and then walk that same path again and again and again, sometime the weight of your sin is going to overwhelm the, the strength of your faith in that. And in verse 24, as he looks down through all of this, he said, you've been following a leader, but not the counsel of Christ. Those that followed her, it was striking to me that they were called children because it indicates that those that followed her had a total lack of maturity. They were not spiritual adults. They, they simply followed an individual and not the word of God, and they didn't seek the counsel of the Lord for themselves. And to the church, the Lord gives this word of correction. For those of you that remain faithful, I'm not going to impose any other burden upon you. But his directive to action was this. Only hold on to what you have until I come. Hold fast to your testimony in a culture full of a Jezebel spirit. And then he gets to the reward part in verses 26 and 27. To him who overcome and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery just as I have received authority from my father. So he gives this challenge to conquer to those who need to finish. And other, he's saying, don't drop out. If you will keep on going, you are going to be a conqueror. Now, this is really interesting as it relates to this particular town. Because this was a town that had little power, little authority. They had already been a disposable town. They get run through. They get rebuilt. It was strictly, they were existing strictly as a military outpost to save the bigwigs farther down the road. And in the middle of this, the Lord says, listen. You're going to rule. I'm going to give you an ability to rule which you've never had before if you will remain faithful. Actually, the, the terminology used here in rule is really a, a term that we would use shepherd. 
You are going to shepherd the nations, he said. The prerogative of shepherding and ruling is one that Christ gives to them, and he extends it to us for those of us that will be faithful. And he said, you are going to rule with a rod of iron. Now, I have an a, a iron rod at home that I got from Africa. It was a Maasai warrior's. But when I swing it, it falls apart, and I don't know who I would impale. So I left it at home. This is a painted clay potting jar. One of the things that would happen when kings were being uh, crowned and given their kingdom is that they would have huge potting jars, and they would write on them the names of the kingdoms that they were hopeful that they could defeat. And then when the iron scepter had been given the king, he would stand up and he would come up and he would smash those symbolically, I'm going to take over that kingdom. Now, I have been thinking about this all morning. And I've been trying to figure out a way that I can smash this pot and not kill any of you. And I can't find a way. But I really want to. Because it lacks a little something without this crushing that's going on in this. But what I, I begin to see in this that will be most important to you is that some of you need to go home and find some clay pots. And some of you need to write down on those clay pots some things that you need to crush. Maybe there's some, some things in your life that you... You need to literally name it. Say, this is what's been standing in the way of victory for me. Maybe it's an aspect of your life that you have not yielded to the Lord, or maybe you have been caught up in the same thing that Jezebel was teaching, that somehow you can do whatever you want with your body and involve yourself in all kinds of things, but as long as you pray, your soul is clean. And, and the Lord says, that, that is simply not true, but you need to go home and take a pot and write down what it is and then crush it. Because to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, to him who endures, there's going to be an opportunity for you to rule with Christ. And then he wraps that all up with this simple saying. I'm going to give you also the bright morning star. Now look at this. What is the meaning of this bright morning star? I, I believe that the ancients regarded Venus as the morning star. And the reason for it was because when, when the sun would come up, all of the other stars would disappear except Venus, which would continue to hold brightly even when the light was shining. And I believe it was almost as if the Lord was saying, listen, there's coming a day when my glory is going to be raised over the whole earth and all of the personalities and all of those who said that they were something but were not, I'm going to overshadow all of them. And when the sun comes up, I will be the only star left. I will be the star in your life. I will be the guiding light in your life. I will be the one that will shine my way for you. When everything else is dimmed, I alone will stand and I'm going to give you myself the bright and morning star. To him who has an ear, to him who has the Spirit speaking, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Would you